So if we could get back on topic here, what uh, I'd like to do is remind audience members that there is a uh, a topic booth outside. If you have any questions, please present them there. Also, questions will be recorded today. Should you have a question, please come up to the microphone. I would ask that you state your name, and Dr. Hogue and myself will help, help you out that way. Uh, hopefully, with everything well, pending weather, we'll try to wrap around one thirty or so. However, if things do go on a little bit further, we'll keep it going. Michelle? Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Is this one on? Yes. My name is Henning Mundel, and uh, I enjoyed your presentation. Uh, just a, a quick comment. Uh, your reference to the teaching method of the teacher there and the students there as culturally unfriendly. How about removing the word culturally? It's oh. just unfriendly. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> but that isn't my real question. My question is coming. Um, by the way, I'm a retired scientist from the research station. I, I know you, actually. <laughs> Thank you. And I just want to ask you, in relation to your research, which is a very different type of research, you have a very limited number of subjects in contrast to the thousands of plants I've dealt with, which of the, the outcomes, which of the conclusions that you drew um, as a result of your interviews, did you not expect, if any? Um, I think I I alluded to that earlier, was the mentoring. Um, I was really surprised that, I mean, the Aboriginal students that succeeded at post-secondary education had, many of them had support from family. Um, So when I talk about them being pioneers, they were the first to go in their family. Um, But what surprised me more than anything was that the mentors were all white, and I I mean white in in terms of non-Aboriginal. And that those people, and I agree with you, Henning, um, I think that removing that top-down type of lecture is really important. It's hard to do in a university environment, and I know that science is traditionally taught that way. Um, when you have classes of two, three hundred students, I mean, it's pretty hard to mingle with your students unless you um, do some other uh, things. But um, anyways, um, I, I agree. Um, I think that, but what I saw was the mentors were all white, um, and they were people who had a different way of looking at things, who approached science and education in a different way um and they in you know they listened um and they were interested and i think that was thank you hi well you're standing on your toes i'm glad to see that (laughs) (laughs) my name is uh, knut peterson Uh, michelle is, was there a defining moment in your education, in your process of education, uh, not having support from your family? Is there a defining moment where that you can say that, that that's what did it for me? Or <clears throat> I have two defining moments. Thank you. Um, when I was in grade one, um, I went to a small town school in Stockholm, Saskatchewan, and I really wanted to go to school. And I have a short story about this. I write on the side, and I'll just tell you the one story. Um, but I had this teacher, and she was a dwarf. Um, and I, for lack of a, a better word, because um, she always called herself a dwarf. And she was, you know, um, 
two feet high. And she had bright red hair and she had these black glasses. And um, she lived across the street from me. And she used to um, be the gardener for the church across the street. And she had the reputation of being fierce and mighty, like absolutely a tyrant. And she would walk to the front of the classroom when she came in. And all of us grade one students, because at the time there was no kindergarten, right? So we went to grade one. We were all taller than her. And I was a very small grade one person. So I just thought that this was great because I was tall for a change in my life. But she would go up to the front of the class and she would stand on this box and she would talk to us. And she would tell us that we could all do whatever it was that we wanted. And she divided the girls and the boys in half, not in half physically, um, but on either side of the room because she thought that they, we each had different ways of learning and that the girls liked to do things the way that the girls liked to do and that the guys liked to stand up and dance around and do all kinds of things, but that the two didn't necessarily go well together. And <clears throat> she was absolutely amazing. One day in Saskatchewan, and you know, you think this is bad, the snow, um, I lived a mile and a half from school and I used to walk to school and it was blizzarding out. It was about minus 30 and I really wanted to go to school that day and my mom said, no, you're not going to school. It's too terrible. And so then she was taking care of my baby brother and so I snuck out the back door. And I walked to school and I walked and I walked and I got there. And there was me and another student at school that day. And she was there and I couldn't believe it. Um, and so she said, well, what do you want to do? And she made us hot chocolate and we sat down on the floor and I said, well, I want to learn to read. And she said, well, that's a lot for one day. Um, but she got down a bunch of books and by the end of the day, I knew how to read. And that was for me the most defining moment. And then I've had other teachers along the way. Um, but without taking up more time. Michelle? <laughs> On my own? Oh, yes. Yeah. I have a question. What is... Oh, my name is Tad Mitsui. Hi, Tad. <laughs> Hello, Michelle. <laughs> um, what is spontaneous learner? This is what I was uh, called when I once took an aptitude test. And uh, all my life, I was a lazy learner. I hated reading books. And uh, I, my style of learning was spreading everything on my desk and put my feet up and uh, pick up something that looked nice and read a little bit, and moved on to another book. Uh, I really suffered from inferiority complex mm -hmm. because I hated to do systematic learning. Mm -hmm. And uh, this person, psychologist who tested me, aptitude test, was the first one who gave me any kind of a positive answer. Tad, you're not lazy. You are spontaneous learner, like Indians, she said. Mm. What does that mean? Well, uh, that's a good question. You just I think you just described my daughter. Um, that's, <laughs> that's really good. Um, I, I think, you know, um, I, I'm not a psychologist, so I can't actually say about the diagnosis, um, if that's what it was. Um, but, I, but I think that 
a lot of people are spontaneous learners, right? What grabs your attention? What's your passion? Um, how do you engage somebody? Well, I think, you know, looking at a whole bunch of books, and particularly if you're not a good reader um, or you don't understand the language, what if you come from a different language where that's not your language? Mathematics, for example, is a language. If you don't understand it, how are you supposed to do well at it? Um, so I think a spontaneous learner is some is um, somebody who's grabbed, something's grabbed your attention. And so you move from one thing to another to another until you find what it is that you, you like and you pick what you need from that. Um, and I call that learning um, as well as any other kind of learning. And perhaps that's the better kind of learning. Um, that's my take on it. And again, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't, I don't know. If I may ask, why did she say I was like native person? Ah, okay. Well, I was going to avoid that one. <laughs> um, you know, because that's a derogatory statement, right? In some ways, it's, you're like a Native person. Um, it's a different style of learning. That doesn't make you like somebody. You learn in a different kind of way. Aboriginal people, um, and, and many people, not just Aboriginal, as Henning said, are hands-on learners, applied learners. And when you look at the generation that's coming up now who... Um, are texting and who are, you know, all into videos. All of those are dexterity, hands-on learning type of things. So I think that the textbook learning where we sit down and we study for hours and hours on end, that works for some people. I would say that it doesn't work for all people, and it may not even work for the majority of people anymore. But when you come from a culture where, um, you know, survival is hands-on learning, you're not reading about that, you're doing that, and you're doing that spontaneously. Um, I, it's just a different way of learning, and it's a different part of brain development, I think. Um, and I don't think either of them are wrong. You know, it's just different. Hi, my name is Deb Jarvie, and thanks, Michelle. That was a great presentation. Thank I'm you. just wondering, uh, do you think that you will have the opportunity or the, the desire to develop uh, a course that looks at holistic science? Uh, yeah, I, well, I would love the opportunity. Um, that depends on my superiors, one of which is sitting here. Um, so I have to be really careful what I say. because. Um, <laughs> but yes, I would love that opportunity. Um, and I would love to be able to do that. And I've, I've started in the two courses that I'm teaching now. This is uh, one, of the, one of the courses um, that I teach is um, chemistry for First Nation students. And um, this year, it's been absolutely great. My Indigenous Studies course has been great because I've I've done that um, and you know in all honesty that's the reason that I did a PhD because it affords you the space to do that you're not answering you're, you're answering to a certain degree but you're not answering to a particular um, criteria that are set out by somebody else you can you can experiment in your classroom a little bit and I like that part of it so I'm hoping so now she's going to get up and give me a hack <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm Muriel Mello, and I am from the University of Lethbridge, and I do work with Michelle. Michelle, thank you for the presentation, because I have heard you talk about your dissertation and your research in little bits and pieces, but I've never seen this all laid out, and I learned some things about your own background, which makes me think you're even more astounding for what you've accomplished. Oh, thank you. um, but also, I'm always engaged. I'm engaged with the notion that we, in a much broader sense within Canada, the world, may have something to gain 
from seeing more First Nations people um, develop professional careers in science. And you alluded to the fact that we may have things to gain from people thinking from this liminal space. Mm -hmm. Could you give us some examples, perhaps from some of your uh, people that you've talked to for your research, of where they were able to draw on that different way of knowing and come up with a novel approach or a different way of framing a question or finding a solution? to some kind of question that they had in their scientific research? Well, that's a complicated question. I think that's my whole dissertation. Um, but um, one of the, I guess one of the things that, that I, I saw with each and every one of um, the people that I interviewed is that they had, um, they had a, a positive approach in looking and, a, and an inquisitive approach at looking at science and just at being in an institution, a Western institution, they didn't um, they didn't take anything personally. And and Roy often talks. Roy Weaselfat often talks about um, it's not a personal issue. In some cases, it it is, of course, but it, in a lot of cases, it's not. It's more of an ignorance. Um, and and I think that um, I'm not I'm not sure I'm going to answer your question in total here. Um, that Aboriginal people who come to a Western institution have a luckier place than than non-Aboriginal students because they have a cultural background um, and they have a Western experience. And they're able to bridge that. And they're able to see the relationships that non-Western people can't um, because we don't have that. They we uh, I didn't grow up. Um, on reserve, so um, have that same cultural background, um, and so it's a harder task for abor for non-Aboriginal people to do that. I don't know if that answers your question. Any example, particular oh. example of of a moment when somebody's done that? Um, I well, I can think of of one person in particular. I don't I don't want to. Uh, use names specifically. Oh, I guess I can't. Esther, um, Esther Tailfeathers is was an amazing um, student of mine. When when Esther came to university, um, she said I could speak about her, so that's good. Um, when Esther came to the university, the first time she came, she was nineteen, um, and she came out of uh, out of high school, and she didn't do well. Um, she was actually t required to withdraw. And so she went off, and she worked um, in Waterton for a couple of years, and um, and she met her then husband. Um, but she she came back to the university, um, was admitted back into the university, and she went into Native American studies, and she focused there for a while, and then she went off to Norway because um, her husband Sammy and came back, and decided to do medicine. Um, but she was able to bring all of that knowledge back and so whenever I would try and um, explain something to her she would sit down and she would say well is it like this it's like this and so in our culture it's this and so then I started thinking differently as well um, and I had to actually learn that culture a funny story though sorry so is, does that answer that enough um, <laughs> it's just going to grow me later. Um, but I have a really funny story. Um, when I was teaching chemistry to my First Nations students, the very first time I taught the course in a lab, um, I have a lab component, and I really wanted a large lab component, so Muriel will attest to the fact that I've, I've uh, hounded her for much more lab time. But anyways, the very first time I taught it, I said, you know, this is 
the glassware. We were checking in our glassware. I said, well, you know, go through your glassware kit and pull out a beaker and a pipette and things like that. And I went to the other room for a minute, came back, and they were all looking at me like I had three heads. And I, and I said, well, what's the matter? And didn't even clue in. I don't know how I could be so dumb. But they said, well, what's a beaker? And I went, oh, we don't even have the language for that. And so we had a fun game because what we did was we took all the glassware out and we named it. And I had to learn it. And so they gave me all kinds of like the silly pory thing with numbers on it and the sucky uppy thing. with. It. And I had, and so I tested them and they tested me. And to tell you the honest truth, I failed uh, miserably as a matter of fact. So that's one way of learning. So that's the fun that we have in the lab. Thank you very much. This is very interesting. Uh, I spoke to you before. I'm mm -hmm. Mary Shillington. Uh, I worked for in the 80s for uh, in Manitoba, in Brandon, for BUNTEP, Brandon mm -hmm. University's Northern Teachers Education Program. And they have taken some of your concepts uh, and adjusted it in a different way because they they have learning centers on the reserves mm -hmm. and they're usually 25 students and so they live at home and they go to school there and the professors come in for the three or four weeks and do their classes and then that professor goes on to another learning center, another Bontep center, and, and a new professor comes in after a week or so. But they've built into the program as well uh, time for the students to get ready for university. Mm -hmm. uh, so it might improve their math, their writing skills, whatever, and they assume that this is going to take longer because this woman's going to get pregnant and she's going to have to have time off or, you know, or some kind of crisis is going to happen within the family. And so they know that that's going to happen. Now, the group that I worked with came from Peguis and Fisher River, and they had to come down into Brandon to do the the their special classes because they were going to teach uh, middle school and uh, high school. Mm -hmm. And so they had to do those special things. Now, that was quite an adjustment, and some of them did it better than others, uh, but they'd already had the experience of having the professor there, but on a much more intimate level because there's only 25. Uh, and, and they'd had a chance to upgrade. So I guess what I'm asking is the students now here that are at U of L. Um, they haven't had that kind of experience as a rule. Is there some way that there could be an interim kind of thing to help them kind of do that to, to in, before they come into a class of 200 or 300 or whatever so that they could then then get that adjustment time? That's, that's actually a wonderful idea, and that's actually what we do. Um, I'm the coordinator of the First Nations Transition Program, and that is a program specifically for non-admissible students to come to the university. So these are students who are perhaps out um, out of university or out of school for a period of time. On the reserve, there's Red Crow Community College. So some of them have finished some of that, but still maybe not even enough. Um, and so this is for students who are, by university standards, non-admissible. But they have some things that we we look at, so probably their 20 levels and some other things. And so the transition program is to enable that, and we've had a lot of success at that. The problem that I still encounter in each and every class, and I would speak for my colleagues that are teaching as well, is that each and when you start a class at the beginning of the year, I can't bank on the fact that my students are going to be all at the same level. Um, they may have the requirements, but 
in most cases, even if they have the requirement, some of them may have been at a school for 10 years. Um, and so they may have that requirement, but they're still not at that level. Um, so I don't have the same starting gate. I can't expect the same thing as all of my students who come from, say, CCH and LCI or wherever. Um, so, But, yeah, that's what we do. Hi, Michelle. Thank you very much. That Thank was you. That was a wonderful talk. Is this on? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, um, could you just state your name? Bev Mundell atherstone And I am a psychologist. Oh. <laughs> Glad but I didn't I'm, say anything. <laughs> but I've never heard a diagnosis like that. Hmm. <laughs> um, but I think she was trying to be quite, quite uh, complimentary to you, mm -hmm. Tad. Um, do you, do you, you probably know Catherine Kingfisher? Yes. At the University of Lethbridge? Mm -hmm. In her feminist anthropology course, she talks about that liminal space mm. as the, you know, the space between the dominant discourse and the subordinate discourse as a place for change mm -hmm. and for revolution. And the educational system really does need a revolution. Mm -hmm. um, every time the revolution starts, it seems to get squashed down again. In my, I was in, uh, I was doing a combined BA B Ed forty five years ago, so I've seen the the ed system go through these cycles of uh, uh, trying to be more inclusive of all kinds of different learning styles and ways of learning and ways of seeing the world, and then go back. Mm -hmm. And in Alberta, the scary thing is that every time um, the educational system loses money, then we kind of go back to this the very, I guess, Spartan method of almost a lecture system, which is the least effective way of teaching. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question would be, how do you see that we could get more funding for a variety of ways of teaching, not just, not just at university, but throughout the whole educational system? Uh, maybe I should just defer that question <laughs> to your um, to your colleague behind you. Um, <laughs> he's he's on the campaign trail. <laughs> I, Mark, do you want to take over? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I was I was going to jokingly say that, but then I didn't think I should perhaps let my political. Um, to, you know, it's it's going to require a lot of um, voice um, and. You know, I don't have an easy answer for that because there are so many cutbacks and so many of the things that I've been working on have been stopped because of that. Um, and so, you know, I, I actually don't know if I have an answer for that. I mean, I, I think that we just have to keep campaigning. Um, the Aboriginal population is the only young population and growing population, and, and we need to put our resources into that. And so I think we need to make that a priority um, and, you know, not that everything else has to go by the wayside, but I do think if we're looking at education, um, that is the new buffalo, but that is where our population is going to come from, and I think we have to invest in that. Um, so campaigning people like Mark um, behind you Thank to you. go to the... Thank you. Um, and do you know Fran Leggett, Dr. Fran Leggett at the the research station? I don't. She, I know who she is. I don't know her personally. Okay, so you, you didn't mention modeling. You mentioned men mentoring. But Fran Leggett is trying to get more women scientists in the schools. Mm -hmm. Well, my my initial um, research way back when I was young was women in science. Um, and I was the first and only uh, female 
scientist that the University of Lethbridge had in the chemistry department uh, for about 15 years. So um, I know what that's like. Uh, hi, Michelle. Uh, hi. My name's uh, Crystal Frank. And I had a question um, regarding specifically um, Aboriginal students going into, um, sorry, Blackfoot Aboriginal students going into science. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering if you could comment, what extent do you think the path one has to take to get a science degree and a career in science and also the local area plays? A um, bit of background to that. I know a lot of our family and our um, friends who are, you know, Aboriginal students and from the local areas here and they are Blackfoot. Um, there's a big tie to stay home or come mm -hmm. back and contribute home. And from what I see, some of the problem might stem from the fact that to actually get an education in science or chemistry, biology, one must go to school for many years. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those degrees cannot be obtained here in, in Lethbridge. Um, one would have to go out, outside and you look at University of Calgary, um, limited number of spots open for, you know, master's, Ph.D., and then a lot of people like to come back and contribute to their, their home reserves. And so if we look in the southern Alberta area, I think that there is a very limited number of jobs for people, you know, in chemistry, biology, and so on. Um, so in your research, has any of that come up? Um, absolutely, it has. Um, I guess one of the things that I, I'd like to say about that is that this is where we need partnerships. Um, and I think partnerships are really important. Um, a couple of the things that I've been involved in is um, having um, practicums on reserve. Um, you know, I think that's really important. Um, and inviting um, those students both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, to go to the reserve and to work on the reserve, um, to do those kinds of things. I think that we need to have some partnerships with places like the University of Calgary, um, perhaps in the University of Alberta's a little bit far away, um, because that is the issue. Our Aboriginal students that reside in southern Alberta don't leave. And mm -hmm. so we need to open that access in a different kind of way. Um, and so I'm working with health sciences on some things, some programs, um, without saying what they are um, out loud, but um, I think that those are possibilities that are coming down the pipeline in a, in a new way, and I'm hoping that's the case. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, and uh, just something that came to mind, too. Has any thought been given to those partnerships, like using something like um, uh, the co-op programs that yes, we have. Yeah. So students would also get credit that would help them towards, and also be paid. I think paid mm -hmm. is a That's big thing, too, because I don't think, you know, if you do internships, you don't get school funding, I believe. Is yes, yeah. and, and but you can get um, applied studies, oh, um, which is a really good thing. Um, one of the projects that I have on the go um, that I just got some funding for is a theatrical periodic table, and I want to do a performance in the next year um, with each of the elements being um, somewhat based on my master's. But I want my Aboriginal students to come up with some ideas and to do a performance based on culture um, and a periodic table. And, yes, paying them is, is hugely important. Um, just to go back to applied studies, students who work um, on reserve can get credit for applied studies. And I do, we do have something in, in the works with a co-op program as well. Um, the problem is that a lot of our First Nation students don't apply. Mm -hmm. um, and we need to encourage that application um, and to tell them that that's out there for them. So, oh, thanks. thanks. Mark? Uh, Mark, if we could wrap up things, you'll be the last question for today. Thanks. Thank you. Um, I'm Mark Sandy Lenz. Uh, actually, I have two questions. Uh, I hope that you'll be able to answer them briefly. 
uh, I started university as a chemistry major, um, switched over to psychology about halfway through. So I, I'm a psychologist too, and not much of a chemist. And, and when you showed your, your demonstration, uh, the only thing that came to my mind was phenolphthalein. <laughs> nope. But I, I wish you, if you could do it in a few seconds, explain the reaction. I'm curious. I've always been intensely curious about everything. Uh, the second question has to do with mentoring. And it, it occurred to me when you were talking about it that all of the people virtually who have uh, achieved some pinnacle have had mentors, uh, maybe more than one mentor, but mm -hmm. mentoring is in a very important process. And I'm wondering about if you're uh, trying to develop that in your own program and if you're making any headway with people like Muriel and other um, members of the, uh, uh, the, the hierarchy in the Faculty of Arts and Science in getting mentoring programs everywhere. Mm -hmm. Th those are really good questions. Um, the the um, reaction is a secret, but I'll give you a hint. It's the iodine clock reaction. Um, so you can look that up if you're a chemist or Google it, one of the two. Um, so that's what that one is. Um, and secondly, um, thank you for the question on mentoring. I think it's really important. Um, I've worked in mentoring for a long time, and the sad part was that when I started working in mentoring, I had to go to the University of Calgary. Um, so I was involved in women in science and engineering, and I received the Mentor of the Millennium Award for that. Um, but um, trying to get that on campus, and so I work with um, some of the outreach, but the students, um, Chris, Christy Burke um, with the university does a huge mentoring um, component, and I've now got the FNMI um, group of students to mentor, and I'm constantly hounding my students who go through my program to serve as mentors, and then I bother them in September, and I've already got them signed up. So yeah, mentoring is huge. Thank you. Thank you very much for your attention. <laughs>